Lord Jesus, we praise you for who you are and for all that you have done. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for your example to us in prayer. How, as you were about to choose your disciples, your apostles, Lord, who would be your messengers of the gospel, Lord, you showed your dependence on your Heavenly Father by praying. Lord, you showed your confidence in your Heavenly Father by praying. And so, Lord, we thank you that, Lord, in this you provided an example for us. But more than that, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you prayed. For our confidence is not in our ability to pray, but in your perfect prayers. And we thank you, Lord, that every one of the prayers that you prayed for your apostles, your chosen men, was answered in the affirmative. And we thank you, Lord, that because of the answers to those prayers, we have a hope and we have a confidence. Lord, even as we think about the way that, that you worked through these weak and sometimes foolish and proud men to advance your purposes, Lord, we see that you are working in us who are also weak and sometimes foolish and proud to accomplish your purposes in us. Lord, we pray that through the power of your spirit this morning, we, that we would be encouraged, built up. Lord, that we would grow in our confidence in you. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. The passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. Luke 6, verses 12 to 16. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is the word of our Lord. Think back to some of the biggest decisions you've faced in your life. Think back to some of the biggest issues you faced in your life. And for some of you, that time is right now. How central is prayer in such times? Well, I hope that prayer plays a central role in the threat of COVID-19. And also in additional trials like some in our church are facing. I pray that prayer is central. I pray that prayer is central as you seek to overcome sin and temptation. As you seek to deal with relational conflict. To overcome financial crisis and so on. I hope that prayer also plays a central role in major decisions in your life. Decisions like who and when to marry. What to do for work. 
where to live, where to go to church. Prayer should be central in everything because prayer is vital. You need to pray. But I don't want to make this sermon all about an exhortation to pray because this is not the central point of the passage. Yes, Jesus shows us the necessity of prayer. And yes, Jesus provides us with an example of prayer. But the central point of the passage is that Jesus prayed. Yes, in the major decisions and issues Jesus faced, he prayed. This is a recurring theme in Luke. We already saw Jesus praying at the time of his baptism, retreating from the crowds up the mountain to pray. This morning we're going to see him do that again. Luke tells us that Jesus prayed just prior to asking his apostles the all-important question, Who do you say I am? Luke tells us that Jesus prayed prior to his, to his going up the Mount of Transfiguration, prior to sending out the apostles, prior to his crucifixion. Luke definitely emphasizes the prayers of Jesus at key points in his ministry. And this is one of those key times. Now it's hard to say when these events took place. Luke, 12, Luke 6, 12 to 16 is paralleled with Mark 3, verses 13 to 19 and Matthew 10, 1 to 4. Luke does not chiefly organize his material chronologically, but thematically and geographically. However, as the events of Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16 take place, tension has been mounting with the scribes and the Pharisees. So much so that in Luke 6, 11, the Pharisees were so filled with fury over his challenge to their failure to keep the Sabbath that they began to plot Jesus' death. And less than two years later, they would succeed. The time had come for Jesus to choose his apostles. He knew that he was not going to remain on the earth. And at this point, he had disciples, but he had not yet set any apart as apostles. This morning, we're going to see how this important decision was prefixed by prayer. We'll see just how important the decision was as we consider who the apostles were and the implications of their ministry. Now this passage, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16, really provides a bridge between the, the, previous, the previous section and the next. Although the religious authorities had strongly opposed Jesus, his chosen ones followed him. Although the religious authorities held to a false religion, his chosen ones would be heralds of the true faith. This group of men is going to replace the religious establishment and become the church's first leaders. Jesus has called some of these men as disciples already. We've already met Peter and James and John and, and also Levi who became Matthew. And, and they, they all left everything and followed him. But apart from that, they really haven't done very much that's been recorded for us so far. They've been very much in the background as Lucas focused on Jesus' authority and ministry. But again, we see the apostles named in this passage, but they're really not doing anything yet. That is going to change. Jesus is now entering another phase in his ministry. In the Sermon on the Plain, as this is often called, Jesus is going to focus his teaching on the disciples and especially the apostles, even though his teaching takes place in the presence of crowds. 
His chosen men are being prepared for their chosen ministry. The Pharisees are for now silenced. And Jesus will teach uninterrupted. So this morning we're going to see in verse 12 how Jesus chose. In verse 13, what Jesus chose. And in verses 14 to 16, who Jesus chose. So first of all, how Jesus chose in verse 12. Read this for us again. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. What did Jesus pray for? Well, Luke doesn't tell us directly, but you can see from the context that he prayed for what he was about to do. Look at verse 13. When day came, he called his disciples. Jesus prayed for this choice. The choosing of 12 men and the choosing of this specific 12 men came from God. Choosing the apostles was such an important decision that Jesus prayed all night. He determined, he determined that this, in this situation, prayer was more important than sleep. And this wasn't from a mere sense of duty. It was from a sense of necessity. Jesus knew how important the choosing, that choosing rightly was. He knew how important seeking wisdom from God was. He knew how important being in line with God's will was. He knew how important his teaching to these men was. He knew how important the ministry of these men was. And he knew the importance of all of these things, so he prayed fervently. So let's look at some of the things we see in Jesus' prayer here. Jesus prayed fervently and frequently. As I mentioned earlier, he prayed at his baptism. He prayed as he retreated from the crowds. He, he prayed before asking the disciples, the, the apostles, who do you say that I am? He prayed prior to the transfiguration. He, pri he prayed prior to sending out the apostles and prior to his crucifixion. And here he retreated to pray before choosing the apostles. All night long, Jesus prayed. This is really one word in the original. This is, there's, this is the only time that word is used. That all night he continued in prayer. In fervent prayer to God. It's, it's emphatic that Jesus was all night in prayer to God. So Jesus prayed fervently and frequently. Jesus displayed his dependence on God in prayer. Luke has made abundantly clear the fact that all that Jesus does, he does as one who has been anointed by the Holy Spirit, the one who's been empowered by the Holy Spirit. Luke 4.18 Jesus is truly God and he is truly man. And everything that he does as, as the God-man is in harmony with the plans and the purposes of God. And he knew that in order to do this, he must pray for God to work in and through what he was doing. So he showed his dependence on God in prayer. Jesus also displayed his confidence in, on God in prayer. Jesus prayed and then he acted. He, he prayed about what he's going to do and then he did it. He didn't hesitate. He went ahead and, choose, and chose, trusting that God had heard his prayer and confident in God's ability to answer his prayer and confident that God would, that God would answer his prayer. So he displayed confidence on God in prayer. He also pers pursued his relationship with God in prayer. 
Jesus enjoyed not only perfect harmony with the Godhead, but also perfect love with the Godhead. Now, now you love talking to those that you love, right? And Jesus loved talking to God in prayer. As Jesus walked through this world during his incarnation, he was eager to maintain that relationship. He must necessarily seek to maintain that relationship because he was who he was and who he is. And so all of these things are lessons for us. If Jesus prayed fervently and frequently, how essential is prayer for us? If Jesus displayed his dependence on God in prayer, how necessary and essential is prayer for us? If Jesus displayed his confidence on God in prayer, how necessary is prayer for us? If Jesus pursued his relationship with God in prayer, how necessary is prayer for us? Prayer is necessary whether you realize it or not. So pray. Pray that God would make you realize the necessity of prayer and pray that God would give you a passion for prayer. Now, prayer doesn't come easily for, to me. Prayer takes work for me. <clears throat> prayer, it, when I'm trying to pray quite often, I find myself distracted or, or praying repetitious prayers. I know that, that years ago I would fall asleep quite often as I was praying, and, and so I, I determined I'd better kneel to pray. And so I, I'd kneel beside my bed with my hands like this, and I would pray. Well. Sometimes that, even that didn't help me to keep from falling asleep. I remember one night I woke up. I don't know how long I'd been in this position, but I know that my shoulders ached because I had been stuck like that for quite some time, sound asleep, supposedly praying. And I know that I'm not the only one that prayer doesn't come easy for. That's one of the main reasons why I chose to focus my studies and my doctorate on prayer, on praying through Scripture, especially on the introduction of the practice of praying through Scripture through the so-called Lord's Prayer. And we're going to be looking at, at this again when we get to Luke chapter 11, where, where Jesus teaches on the subject again. The early church also followed the practice of praying. And the, Holy church, or the, the early church, we'll see in the book of Acts, prayed at important times and in the face of important decisions. I'm reminded of Joshua chapter 9, and when, when Joshua and the nation of Israel had entered into the promised land, and, and you remember the, 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 the Gibeonites were deceived into making a peace treaty, sorry, the Israelites were deceived into making a peace treaty with the Gibeonites, who remember they, they put the stale bread in their bags and put on worn out clothes and shoes and said we'd come from a, a long way away. And they were the, the Joshua and the leaders were deceived into making a treaty with them. And we're told specifically in Joshua 9:14, because they did not ask the counsel of the Lord. Joshua and the leaders did not pray, and so they were deceived. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray. Not just at important times and for important decisions. We need to pray all the time. Prayer is important all the time. We are to pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 So yes, we are to pray. But again, the main point of this passage is not that we need to pray. 
The main point of this passage is that Jesus prayed. Our, our confidence cannot be in our prayer or we are in big trouble. Our confidence is on the fact that Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed all night. Jesus prayed for these men and he prayed for their ministry. Aren't you thankful that Jesus prayed here? Because 2,000 years later, we are still reaping the benefit of Jesus' all-night prayer vigil. Because we're still reaping the benefits of the ministry of these men. So let's think about the ministry of, of these men. Let's think about what Jesus chose. Verse 13. I'll read it for you again. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from the twelve whom he named apostles. At the break of day, Jesus called all of, of his disciples who had been around him together. Now a disciple is a follower. In the ancient Near East, individuals would follow a particular teacher. It wasn't like seminary today when you, you go somewhere and then you sit in a series of lectures for three or four years. It wasn't like people who follow particular teachers online today. The disciple would literally follow his teacher, traveling around with them and learning from them. And such was the case with Jesus. There were, there were many disciples. There were, we read a couple of weeks ago about the disciples of John. Those, those men who followed around with John the Baptist. Well, here Jesus has his own disciples, and we don't know how many he had at this point. And that the number of, of disciples is going to fluctuate dramatically th throughout his ministry. Sometimes there are going to be large numbers and sometimes large numbers are going to leave. Luke told us in, um, in Luke 5 verses 1 to 11 that Peter, James, and John had become disciples. Remember that, that Jesus had handpicked them as they were in their fishing boats and they left everything and followed him. And Luke told us, in, again in Luke 5, 27 to 28, that Levi, the tax collector, who would be renamed Matthew, was also handpicked by Jesus to become a disciple. And that he left his tax booth, that he left everything and followed Jesus. John also tells us in John 1, 35 to 51, that the, the list of the first disciples includes Matthew and Philip and Nathaniel. So there were, were quite a few of these men that Jesus is about to choose that had been following with Jesus since the very beginning. And we're going to look closely at these individuals in a few moments. Well, out of that larger group of disciples, Jesus chose 12 to become apostles. I was reminded of, of being in school and when you're going to go, when you're going to play Red Rover at recess and, and people, they make picks, they'll say, okay, I'm going to take you and you and you and the, the biggest ones would always get picked first and, and I was kind of small and scrawny when I was in school and, and so I was, was often picked last. I don't know what it would have been like when Jesus, when Jesus picked um, these apostles, but, but he chose out 12 of them. So what Jesus chose are apostles. Now the word apostle is a transliteration of the Greek word apostolos, which means sent. 
Now, Luke uses this term apostles more frequently than the other synoptic gospels. Luke uses it six times in his gospel account, whereas the other gospel writers use it only once or twice. They generally use the more generic term disciple. Now, it really makes sense that Jesus is going to, or that Luke rather, is going to use the term more often because, because the gospel according to Luke is really part one of his story. He's going to continue with a sequel in in the book of Acts, where he's going to use this word 28 times, where these men, especially Peter and John, will pay, um, play a much more prominent role. The apostles are among the most important men who ever lived. Their, their selection was also a pronunciation of judgment against the existing religious authorities. The, the scribes and the Pharisees, in fact, the whole ruling council, had been rejected, but Jesus chose these 12 men. The false religion that was promulgated by these false teachers was being dismantled and being replaced with the truths of the gospel. And these men were chosen specifically by Jesus to be his representatives and the messengers of the kingdom. Luke 9 verses 1 to 6. They were chosen as the ministers of the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 3 6. Now just think for a moment about what God did through them. God spoke his word directly through, to them through divine revelation. Not only did these men have the immense privilege of walking with Jesus and learning from him directly, but the Holy Spirit will carry several of them along in order to record Holy Scripture. 2 Peter 1, 21. God made these men the source of sound doctrine. In Acts 2.42, at the birth of the church, we read that the, the apostles' teaching was central. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. So the teaching of the apostles was authoritative and was essential for guiding the church in faith and practice. God performed miracles through these men. Mark says that Jesus chose them to be with him and to be sent out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Mark 3 verses 14 and 15 and 2 Corinthians 12 12 says that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. So much like the miracles of Jesus confirmed his message, the miracles that the apostles performed confirmed their message demonstrating that it was the same message. God made these men the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. So Jesus is the cornerstone that, that sets the foundation of the building, and then the, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets goes out from there. They form the foundation. The foundation has been laid and the canon has been closed. So continuing revelation is not only superfluous, it is erroneous. God will give these men authority in final judgment. 
Jesus says in Luke 2 verses 29 and 30, I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It boggles the mind, but these men are going to sit on thrones beside Jesus pronouncing judgment. And finally, God will enshrine the names of these men in the new Jerusalem. Turn with me in your Bible, please, to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, I'm, I'm not sure if, if, again, if you have a, even if you have a more, um, a more metaphorical understanding of this, you, you have to see the continuity. This reveals the importance of the 12 apostles. So then the, this then takes us to our next question. Why did Jesus choose 12 apostles? Why not 11? Why not 40? Well, look at Revelation 21.12. Now, I didn't keep your, tell you to keep your finger there, but I'm sure you can find it easily enough. Second last chapter in the Bible. The city had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the, at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. So here you have, in the walls of the New Jerusalem, you have the names of the 12 apostles inscribed, and you have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed. Do you see the continuity there? The 12 tribes of Israel give way to the 12 apostles. This is typological. The 12 tribes of Israel were stewards of the promises of God. Now the 12 apostles are about to carry that responsibility. They have given that to the church. So God has given these men an enormous responsibility and privilege. So finally then, let's consider who Jesus chose in verses 14 to 16. This passage is one of four New Testament lists which list, the, which list the 12 apostles. You can find it also in Matthew 10 verses 2 to 4, Mark 3 verses 16 to 19, and Acts 1 13. And in each of these lists, Peter is always first and Judas Iscariot last, except for Acts 1 13 where he is omitted because he has died. Let's take a, a quick look at each one of these 12 apostles in the order that they're given. First of all, Peter. Now remember that Peter is, is, is renamed from the, his birth name, Simon. And this change of name emphasizes his relationship with Jesus. The name Peter is also a, a metaphor because it, it means rock. Now Luke doesn't elaborate here, but, but Matthew does in the Caesarea Philippi confession in Matthew 16. That this is where, where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. So Peter there receives some of Jesus' highest commendation where he says, Blessed are you, for this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my, but my Father who is in heaven. 
And Peter is there, is there acting as in the role that he often takes as the leader of the apostles. He is known for his boldness, but he's also known for his impulsiveness. Because on the heels of that, when Jesus tells him that, that, he is going to, that Jesus is going to die and on the third day rise again, Peter says, God forbid, may that never happen. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, get thee behind me, Satan. So here we have Peter receiving Jesus' highest commendation. And then on the heels of that, some of Jesus' most his stiffest rebuke. And Peter is going to have a, a cataclysmic fall as he denies Jesus three times. But Peter is going to be reinstated because Jesus has prayed for him. Because Jesus has prayed for him as he has for the other apostles as well. Next, Luke lists Andrew. This is Luke's first mention of Andrew, Peter's older brother. He is also a fisherman. Luke's only other mention of Andrew is in Acts 1.13. John tells us that it was Andrew who was at the feeding of the 5,000 who said that there is a boy here who has five loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? John 6.9. Then we have James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Luke 5.10, and also uh, called the sons of thunder, Matthew 3.17. They were Galilean fishermen. They were the ones who were fishing with Peter in, in Luke chapter 5. And piecing together uh, John 19.25 and Matthew 27 and 27.56 and, and Math, uh, Mark 15.40, we could find out that they are Jesus' cousins, that their mother is Salome, Mary's sister. And that they, they worked with Peter and Andrew. Now James, we're told in Acts 12, 1 and 2, was one of the first martyrs in the early church. And John, his brother, was known as, as the disciple who Jesus loved. Remember that he, he was, it seems he was the only one of the 12 apostles who wasn't martyred. That he had a, a long lifespan, but that he had been exiled to Patmos, the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. And he also wrote 1, 2, and 3 John. Philip appears only very briefly in the New Testament. We see him in John 1, verses 43 to 48. He was from Bethsaida. And he was the one who introduced the other apostle, Nathaniel, to Jesus. But like the other apostles, he often struggles to understand the, the nature of Jesus' mission. Bartholomew, whose name means son of Tomle. Speculation is also that he is the, the Nathaniel of John 1.45. It's actually a pretty good, uh, the case for that is actually pretty good because the, the synoptic gospels don't mention Nathaniel and John doesn't mention Bartholomew. And the other lists, apart from Acts 1.13, include him with Philip. Matthew, we met a couple of weeks ago. Remember, that's Matthew who uh, had been the tax collector, Levi. He's the one who threw an evangelistic party and in invited all of his friends in order to meet Jesus. And he's the one who wrote the gospel according to Matthew. Thomas, whose name means twin, is also called Didymus. 
In John 11:16, we see that he, we read, So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go that we may die with him. That Thomas is the doubting Thomas of John's gospel, who, who doubted the resurrection. And said, Unless I, I put my, my fingers in the holes in his hands and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. James. This is the second James. He is mentioned as a son of Alphaeus. It's probably his name or the name of his father is given in order to distinguish him from the other James and also from James, the brother of Jesus, who will become an apostle. Now, he can't be the brother of Jesus because at this point, the brother of Jesus doesn't yet believe. Now, we have the second double, Simon. Simon the Zealot. So they cannot be confused with Simon Peter. Now, it's been mistranslated in the King James um, as Simon the Canaanite. But he was a zealot. They, they, the zealots were a, a fourth party along with the, uh, along with the scribes and the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Who, and they, they followed the Pharisees except for they had a radical opposition to Rome. Now, it's the, the zealots who were the ones who were annihilated by the Romans at, at Masada. And the same rebellion that led to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Then we have Judas, the, the third double. This is the first Judas. And his name means, he's, he's listed here as the son of James. Likely, again, to distinguish him from the second Judas, the traitor. John in 14, uh, John 14, 22 refers to him as Judas, not Iscariot. Now, this was one of those names that was, was quite common in that day, but has understandably been dropped from popular use. Again, there's another Judas as well, who is not an apostle, but he was the half-brother of Jesus from Mark 6.3. He's also possibly named Thaddeus from, from Mark 3.10 and Matthew 10.3. And finally, we have Judas Iscariot. Although some suggest that his name Iscariot um, comes from the Aramaic term which means false one or the Latin sicarius which means dagger man or assassin is actually a family name. It comes from the, the other region in, another region in Judea. Uh, John 6.71 and, and John 13.26 refer to him as the son of Simon Iscariot. So, so it, this is a family name. But don't you find it remarkable? That when you think about all of the other apostles, of the, the, as Judas compared to the 11 apostles, that this man is on the list. That this traitor, the one who betrayed Jesus to the religious leaders, is on the list as one of the apostles. You wonder, did... did, did Jesus make a mistake? Well, clearly not. Because he is the he, he is in he is the omniscient God. And yes, his, his omniscience is not in its full effect at this time. Remember, he prayed and he committed the choice of these apostles to God. The choice of Judas was intentional. The choice of Judas had a purpose. In John's Gospel, we read, Did I not choose you apostles, and one of you is a devil? 
He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. That's John 6, verses 70 and 71. So Jesus chose Judas. Now there are all kinds of, of theological implications of this, which we'll talk about more as time goes on. But Jesus knew exactly who Judas was and what he was going to do. Jesus chose Judas the thief and the traitor because he knew that he was going to be a traitor. Because he knew that Judas was going to hand him over to the religious authorities in fulfillment of many passages in the Old Testament, but also and ultimately because this is a reflection of the fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. But there's also a warning here in the choice of Judas. There's a warning here for us. Hebrews 3.12 Take care lest there be in anyone an unbelieving heart to lead you from falling away from the living God. And so, so Judas provides for us a warning to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Uh, Philippians 2.12 A parallel warning is in 1 Corinthians 10.12 Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So, so Judas, Judas provides an object lesson for us, a warning. Even though it is impossible for those who, who are truly Christians, who have been born again, to fall away, one of the ways that, that we are kept is by, by the application of the warning passages that cause us to press in to Christ. It's a warning here because even at, at the Last Supper, the other apostles were surprised and they, they went around one by one and said, is it me, Lord? Is it me? Even when Jesus declared what Judas was going to do, they still didn't understand. And it wasn't just because they were unwise. It's often unclear when there is a false convert in the mix. In the mix, the church is not entirely pure. And, and it won't be until the end. Jesus will, will give the parable of the wheat and the tares. That, that there's an enemy is going to sow tares among the wheat of the church. There's going to be weeds in the church. And many of those weeds will not be sifted out until final judgment. I've been a Christian long enough to see many people walk away from the faith. But frankly, even in hindsight, I wasn't usually surprised that when somebody walked away from the faith, it generally was not someone that would have, have deemed to be a mature Christian. But I do remember one time in particular when there was, there was an individual who, by all accounts, appeared to be truly born again. I discipled this person. I baptized this person. But now, several years later, this person makes no profession of faith. This is a warning to me as a pastor to be careful and to seek wisdom from God. And, and even though I was doing that, even though, even though this, this man appeared to be, to be born again and, and, and clearly now is, was never born again, this causes me to be extra diligent in prayer. 
And so again, as, as we think about, about this, these types of situations, we think again about, about Joshua and the, the, being deceived by the Gibeonites. It's not that Jesus was deceived here. Jesus knew all along. Again, he chose the twelve, but one of them was a devil. Friends, even if you pray, things might not work out from a human perspective. But God's plan will always prevail. Jesus committed his plans and purposes and the, and the plans and purposes for these men into God's hands. And God's will prevailed. But as we think about these, these, these 12 men, who Jesus chose. Th think about the different kinds of people, how, how different they were from one another. Now, none of them were prominent, powerful men. But think about the different personalities. Think about bold Peter and doubting Thomas. There were four fishermen. Levi, who became Matthew, was a tax collector. He was a former conspirator with the Romans. But next to him, there was also one who was a, a, a zealot and a vehement opponent to the Romans, who was doing everything he could to tear down the Roman rule. There were very different kinds of people that Jesus chose to bring together, to work together for the advance of the gospel, for the proclamation of the gospel and the advance of his kingdom. I'm reminded of an incident that I experienced early on as a Christian. I was at a men's prayer breakfast in, in, in my, my former boss's home and, and there was, was a knock at the door and so I went to answer it. And many of you know about my, my past and my, the, the fact that I was living very much um, in a way that was in contrast with the, the laws of the land. You can imagine my surprise when I opened the door and there's a uniformed OPP officer at the door. My heart rate jumped. And I don't know if I turned white, but I probably did. I've been conditioned to have a negative response to police officers. You can imagine how I felt a few minutes later when he, he came and sat down next to me on the couch. But I laughed as I, as I said to him, you know, a year ago, the only way I would, would have been sitting next to you, I would have had handcuffs on. Consider how different the people are who the Lord has brought into the church. Are your friends in the church, those who you work with in the church, are they those people that you would have associated with naturally? Or, has it, or is it clear that the gospel has brought you together? So think about the different kinds of people that, that we have in our church and the, the different kinds of friends that we have in the church. We're giving glory to God. Because not too unlike the, the apostles, the Lord is bringing different kinds of people together who have all been purchased by His blood to advance His kingdom. But again, there's one thing that they had in common. And that they had in common with most of us. As Leon Moore says, Jesus preferred to work then as now through perfectly ordinary people. 
In Acts 4.13, when, when the, the, the authorities saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, but they were astonished. Jesus was choosing to work through these common men, through these ordinary men, to re- produce extraordinary results. Jesus is going to send them on mission. In, in, in Luke chapter 9, they're going to come back for more teaching. And he's going to send them out again in chapter 10. And then they're going to return again for more teaching. And then things are going to escalate all the way to the cross. But it's not until the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 2, when the, the Holy Spirit comes down and fills these men, that we see the change that God brings about in their hearts. But the disciples were thick. Even after the coming of the Holy Spirit, they they often didn't understand. But how many times throughout Jesus' ministry did he have to teach them about his death and resurrection? The disciples were often proud, arguing about who would sit next to Jesus in his kingdom. The apostles were often spiritually lazy. In Luke chapter 22, verses 45 and and 46, in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, In the moment of of Jesus' agony, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said in verse 46, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So there in the garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, at almost at the end of his earthly ministry, again we find Jesus praying. But again, we find the disciples, the apostles, showing weakness. These men failed to pray in Gethsemane. But they didn't fall away. Because Jesus had prayed for them. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. We're often thick. We're often proud. We're often spiritually lazy. But God often uses thick, proud, lazy, common people like you and me. The task is too great for us. Our enemies are too strong for us. But Jesus is praying. Brothers and sisters, you and I are not apostles. But we have been sent by Jesus. We don't have any power of our own. We're unable to do what God has called us to do. But as Alistair Begg says, God calls us not on the basis of what we are, but on the basis of what he's going to make of us. God calls us not on the basis of what we are, but on the basis of what he's going to make of us. It's not that that he looks at us and sees our potential. God looks at us and sees our inability But he looks at himself and sees his ability to do extraordinary things out of ordinary people. Brothers and sisters, Jesus prayed for his apostles. But he hasn't stopped praying. Jesus prayed for his apostles and Jesus is praying for you. 
He's continuing to pray. At this very moment, Jesus is at the right hand of God, interceding for you. Romans 8.34, and so is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us according to the will of God. Romans 8.27 and 28. So God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are praying for you right now. You can be confident that He will accomplish, that God will accomplish in and through you exactly what He has sent you for. That He is going to transform you into the image of Christ through the power of His Holy Spirit. That Jesus is praying, that the Holy Spirit is praying that He will use you to advance His gospel and to build His kingdom. So let's join with them in prayer. Triune God, we praise you for your prayer. We acknowledge, Lord, that we are weak. Lord, we acknowledge that we are often sinful. We, we acknowledge that we often fail to take advantage of the means of grace that you have given us, especially that of prayer. Lord, we pray that you would make us a praying people. We pray that, that you would help us to see the necessity of prayer and to, to, to come to you regularly, not just at set times of the day, but throughout the day, and pray to you, knowing that, that we want to dwell, that we do dwell in your face, and we want to, before your face, and we want to cultivate our relationship with you. But Lord, our confidence is not in our prayer. Our confidence is in the fact that Jesus prays for us, that the Holy Spirit prays for us. Our confidence is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that though we are weak and sinful, Jesus died for sinful men and women. Lord Jesus, we are confident that though we are weak and sinful, you will use us to advance your kingdom, that you will use us to proclaim the gospel, that you will use us to glorify your name. Help us, Lord, to join with you. Help us, Lord, to eagerly walk before you and to live for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.